My name is Maria Kent Beers, and my co-host Rachel Martinez and I are pleased to present Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with FTD. We hope this episode leaves you feeling more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. This month, we've partnered with the Association for Frontal Temporal Degeneration, the AFTD, on its 10th annual With Love campaign. This campaign is all centered around Valentine's Day, and it's an opportunity to honor or remember a loved one affected by FTD. This month-long fundraiser aims to raise FTD awareness and funds for the AFTD's mission, all while telling stories with love. So tonight we have Scott Rose with us to tell the story of his late wife, Maureen. Scott, welcome to Remember Me. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. I know you know kind of how we do things. We just like to jump right into the story. And the first question we always ask is, what was that first moment or situation where you said, wait a minute, something's not quite right with Maureen? Sure. Um, I think changes that happen with your loved one where you're seeing them every day perhaps are more gradual and you don't see them as much as perhaps a friend or a relative that hasn't seen them for a couple months and then sees them once. And, and uh, there were a couple comments from family, but uh, I didn't really notice anything until early 2016 when certain normal daily tasks around the house suddenly kind of broke down for Maureen. She had a hard time doing things she'd always done, making coffee, dishes, or laundry. And we would typically do things together after dinner dishes. And I'd rinse them and I'd hand them to her and she'd put them in the dishwasher. And after the third dish, she dried it off and she put it in the cupboard. And I said, well, honey, that's not clean yet. It needs to go in the dishwasher. And she goes, oh, right, right. And I'd noticed that she hadn't made coffee because I was working and she was retired. And, and uh, or she'd make coffee and the coffee was all in the pot when I'd come home. And I'd say, honey, what, did, you, did you make an extra cup of coffee or a pot of coffee? And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't figure out what to do next. And... It was all this sort of breakdown of, of, of uh, processes, simple things like that. Not just forgetful things like forgetting to put the soap in the washing machine. We all do that. But it was sort of this, this freeze, like she just couldn't go any further. And uh, what really became a trigger, and this was in, the, I was watching these events unfold over about a course of six weeks. And what was really a trigger for me was I was, installing a pool for her. She'd asked for a pool and I was putting it together and I was on the inside and I hadn't set a ladder on the outside. And I asked Maureen who was watching me and she, I said, could you bring the chair over so I could step down and get out of the pool? And she saw my work clothes on the chair and she just froze and I could watch and she was thinking it, but she couldn't get to the next step. 
And I said, honey, why don't you pick up the gloves? And then she did. And I said, why don't you put those on the ground? And then she did. And then I said, well, why don't you bring me the chair now? She, then she did. But the, just the gloves sitting on the chair completely threw her and her mind wasn't able to process, what do I do next with this? Because it wasn't as I thought it would be. And, uh, and so that's when I, after about six weeks of that, that's when I sat her down and I, we had a conversation. I said, um, honey, does it seem like things are off for you a little bit? They, they seem like they're off from, as I'm watching things and unfold. And she said, well, maybe. And uh, I said, well, it seems like it makes you sad. And I said, I don't want you to be sad. I said, maybe we should get it checked out. And at that point, not even thinking dementia, uh, we, we were hoping maybe a vitamin deficiency or something. I mean, that's how naive we were about these things. And, and uh, she said, well, I don't know if the doctor can do anything. And I said, well, maybe they can. Maybe there's just something that's, that's missing and we just need to get a doctor to prescribe you something and we'll get it taken care of. And so she did, she went in and I just, uh, I could just feel that it was weighing on her that things were not right and she wasn't able to sort it out and was sad. And so, so we did, we, we went to the doctor and uh, we're very blessed in Portland and that there's lots of clinics and lots of doctors around. And so we wanted to understand very quickly what this was. And so we were willing to take any appointment anywhere just so we could keep appointments flowing and get to a diagnosis. And uh, it was so staggering for me, the first appointment when we went in and they asked you the basic questions, your name, asked her birthday and she couldn't give her birthday. But it wasn't that she forgot it. She just couldn't, she looked at me like she was trying to make the words and couldn't make the words. And I had to kind of coach her through it. I said, well, I said, when I tell you a month, you tell me if that's right. When I got to April, she said, April. I go, yeah, yeah. Do you remember what day in April? And, and we got there, but it was obvious to me at that point that this had become something far more than I had realized in our day to day where we, you know, we took walks and we went out to dinner and we did all these things that we normally do for fun. And I was never sort of asking her something as specific as that. And so how long before that, it's hard to say. So it sounds like her, almost the executive functioning kind of just disappeared in a way, like the step-by-step -step stuff. You get the pot, you put the water in, you put the pot on the sink and you turn the stove on. Right. Um, did you notice any frustration in her during this time when she was with the gloves and, you know, what do I do? Was it like a deer in headlights or was it like angry? No, it wasn't angry. It was, I could see her really trying to work through it. And, and like I say, it made her sad. She just, mm -hmm. She was a very sort of a quiet, introverted person, um, unless she knew you well. And then there was a lot of fun and laughter. But no, she was never one quickly to get to anger. Uh, if she was frustrated, she didn't share that with me and it wasn't evident. But, but just I could see her freezing at the coffee maker or freezing at, you know, getting dressed. And, and I would see this and just this pause and she looked down like she was thought something was wrong with her, but didn't want to talk about it. 
So mm -hmm. I had to be the one to talk about it, sort of bring it out. Can you walk us through the the journey to diagnosis and, you know, what your initial thoughts of what you thought kind of was going on with her and, and what you learned from doctors? Yeah. Uh, you know, FTD is always very hard to get a clear diagnosis on because it is, there's a lot of discovery still taking place and very few specialists that have a lot of experience in it. Fortunately, we did have a, a neurologist that did have some experience with it. Again, not knowing to even ask about that initially. So as I mentioned, I, I took her to her first appointment and she was struggling to, to give her birthday. And so we went through and we had an MRI done and they wanted to schedule a series of tests uh, that were testing more her cognitive function. And some of those tests were in various clinics, various offices, and some they even came and did in my home, at our home, to see if a more comfortable or familiar setting would help with that. And it was during those tests that I realized how many words she had lost, uh, because she did have primary progressive aphasia, the semantic variant. And I just noticed that she stopped telling me stories about her day. And then they just got to fine or okay, or, and she seemed even, which was nice, but she seemed even more delighted when I came home. I'd come home and she was really happy. And I said, yeah, I said, well, do you want to go out? Yeah, I want to go out, you know, because she wasn't trusting herself in, in a foreign environment. And so for me to come home and, and she was just delighted, oh great, I've got somebody that you know I can talk to because I, I came to realize that she wasn't using the phone anymore. She wasn't picking it up to call anybody and, and people weren't necessarily calling her. But the cognitive tests, they had her do some of the tests that a lot of folks know, they'll, they'll give you three or four words and they ask you to repeat those back. Uh, they had her draw a clock uh, she wasn't able to draw the clock. And that was pre-diagnosis. So it was about three months, a three-month journey from, hey, I think we need to go and do the doctor to getting a diagnosis, roughly April through June of 2016. And when you received the FTD diagnosis, had you ever heard of FTD? Never. Uh, I mean, I certainly read a lot about it afterwards, but, but it was clear that it was more than just a, a vitamin deficiency. You know, this, was, this was something very serious. And I remember the day that she, uh, you know, that we went in to the doctor and with the diagnosis and it was late June and she sat us down in the office and, and Marine was very worried. We were holding hands and the doctor came in and they and she told us pretty matter of fact, she says, well, Marine has frontal temporal degeneration and uh, they call it FTD. And I believe she has the primary progressive aphasia version. And we were just kind of stunned by that. She said, do you have it in your family? And we said, no. And then again, being naive because we hadn't read anything yet about uh, dementia. We asked a little bit, you know, how it compared to Alzheimer's and she explained that a little bit. And then I said, so is this just something we live with? You know, do we just make adjustments in our daily life and perhaps there's a, a medicine and it'll just kind of just be a different way that we go through life. And I remember the neurologist very 
matter-of-factly saying, well, no, this is gonna get worse and, and, and this is typically fatal. I think your wife has seven to 10 years. And I could feel Maureen's grip just release from my hand. I mean, it was just, it was a shocking moment. Do you think she was aware? Like, I know she heard what the doctor was saying, but do you think she knew like, okay, something is, you know, this isn't good news. Yeah, she was very aware. I would say that she was really high functioning in, in some aspects for probably a year and a half after that. Um, maybe not quite, maybe, yeah, somewhere between a year and a year and a half in that she was aware enough to know, I don't want you to tell family about this. I don't want you to tell friends about this just yet. I, I, have, I have to figure it out myself. She, she wrestled with it and, and she understood this was real. You know, she didn't go into any sort of denial mode, but she wanted to sort of keep it between her and I. And, and that was hard because you see family and friends and they know something's not right. And, but I respected her wishes and just said, well, you know, your mom's just kind of going through some things and it'll be fine, you know, or your daughter's just going through some things. And, and, uh, but it was December of that year when rumors had started to fly. Family was just making up stories because we weren't giving any information. And then, so people I had not spoken to had, had reached out to me and said, I hear Maureen has Alzheimer's. She has six months to live. And I was like, no, no, where are you hearing this? And so I sat Maureen down and explained what was happening. And I said, you know, we need to share with people what's what's going on. I said, maybe just a little bit so they know. And so we did and, and uh, included it with our Christmas card and just said, want to let you know what's going on with Maureen. And, and, uh, and I had Maureen read it before I sent it out. I said, I want you to feel comfortable with this. And she was still reading at that point. And I remember though, that it continued to get worse in early 17. And in April of 17, I was finding that I needed to be home more. I couldn't just work the way I'd always worked. Uh, she just would sit in the same chair all day, never get up. I would call her multiple times a day from work and say, honey, have you eaten? No. Well, I'd like you to eat something. And I'd find out really she hadn't. And so then I'd walk her through the steps on the phone. I'd say, I'd like you to go to the refrigerator. I'd like you to open it up. Do you see that yogurt? I'd like you to get that yogurt. Now go over and get a spoon and, and kind of walking her through that process. And she would do that, but then I'd come home and the yogurt was maybe half eaten and sitting on the counter. And so it was working her through those different challenges. And certainly I would call friends and ask them to come spend time with her and that kind of thing. But, but people get busy in their own lives and that's, and then, and they just weren't able to make themselves as available as, as they could. And so in April of 17, an opportunity fell in my lap for a, a different job. So I left my job as a principal in an international design firm. And I left a firm of 1200 people to go work for a firm of three people. <laughs> and it was great. And, and I'm still at that, that alternate job. Uh, gentleman I'd known for a long time. I was in the car with him to go see a potential client. We talked about things. And I said, 
of what was going on with Maureen. And he asked, well, well, would you leave? And I said, well, if the conditions were right. And he said, well, what are those? And I said, well, I don't want to travel anymore. I don't want to have evening meetings anymore. I said, I want to not work 60 hours a week. I want to work 40 hours a week. And I want half of those from home. And I said, and I want two clients, not 12. And, and he said, you know, I, I can make that happen. And he did. And good to his word. I mean, Wow. I get that was a that was a Thursday. I told Maureen Friday, and I bring this up, not so much to talk about the decision I made, but the fact that I could bring this up to Maureen that day, and I explained what was going on, and I said, "What do you think?" And she says, "I think you can do that. I think you, <laughs> I think you'd be good at that." And that was that felt really good. That was very heartening that, that she could still evaluate something like that and still was supportive of me. And so, so that was, uh, that was that Thursday night and we met with him Saturday and solidified the deal. And I gave my notice that Monday and, you know, cause I had never sort of operated on my own as a, as an own business. And so this was a scary jumping off point, but, uh, but that she, was able to sort of evaluate that and give me that support and say, yeah, I think you can do this. And so that was helpful. You guys have such a beautiful relationship. You can just tell by you recounting the stories of how you, you talk to her so gently and just, it's really beautiful to hear the relationship that you two had. I want to kind of dive in a little bit to what was this like from a spouse's perspective? You had such a close knit relationship such a wonderful wife and you know she couldn't participate in conversation and and do the things she used to do what was that like for you did you, did you kind of almost feel lonely or how did you kind of learn to interact in this like kind of new relationship that you had with the stage that she was in uh, that's a great question um if if she had had the behavioral type it might have felt different but Maureen had always been a very loving and caring person. And that was, that was the nature of our relationship is being there for each other. The fact that you couldn't do certain things, <laughs> funny enough, I guess, didn't really matter too much because the entirety of our marriage had always been, she was the person with the, with the vision and I was the one that went and made it happen. So if she said, I think we should go see the Rolling Stones in California. And I'd go, okay. And then I'd go get the plane tickets in the hotel and I'd get the <laughs> concert tickets and I'd get everything. And then I'd come back an hour later and say, it's all done. We're going to go see the Stones. She'd go, thank you. And then that's what we do. So that was the nature of our relationship well before the FTD is she had the vision and I went and as the project manager go and execute. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when she was able to do less, for the first year, it was hard because I was feel, felt like I was juggling quite a bit. And then with the job change, I was able to be with her more and do more. And, and my heart would sink just in seeing how little she could initiate on her own. And that was a big part of FTD is it takes away her ability to make the decision to initiate, to stand up, to go get something to eat, to read a book, to play her piano. And I would encourage her when I was working away, encourage her with a lot of phone calls. Have you played your piano today? No. Why don't you play your piano for me? But when I was home more, I was able to encourage more of that. It felt like we were 
helping the FTD to plateau, or at least I was fooling myself and thinking that. I was able to get her to do more because I was there and I could prompt her more. But, you know, as a spouse, I mean, you, you don't ever obviously want to see your, uh, your wife suffering, but the fact that she couldn't do much or she couldn't say much, it, it, it hurt me for her, but it didn't hurt our relationship in that I, I, I like spoiling my wife. And so I don't like doing these things for her. So, and she wanted to go out to dinner every night, you know, because it was a time to go out and it's like, sure, you know, we, we'll go out. We'll go, we'll go. She just wanted, she always loved people watching and she couldn't initiate that. And so to, to go out just so she could watch people was one of the things that she enjoyed doing. We love to travel and that had to slow down and eventually stop with FTD. And that really hurt because I knew that was a dream of hers. She had not been out of Oregon or Idaho her whole life before we got married. We got married when she was 50. And so after we got married, we went to Mexico and Hawaii and we went to Europe and you know, uh, went down to Sicily and, and, and went to New York. And New York was kind of our first big exotic trip. And she didn't stop smiling that whole week because we're in Times Square and we're seeing the Statue of Liberty and she were up at the top of the Empire State Building. And she's, she kind of felt like, wow, I'm really traveling now. This is, this is something else. And, and that was one of our early trips before Europe and Hawaii and Mexico. So she loved that her whole life. And, and so we did have to make adjustments certainly with FTD. I think I just want to echo the way what Maria said, the way that you speak about her and I assume to her when you had the opportunity is just so gentle and I wish I could speak that way to my kids. <laughs> like I'm listening to you and I'm like, go open the fridge. Okay. Get that. And I'm like, wow. Okay. I'm going to go get the yogurt. Like it's just, it's so <laughs> kind. So sweet. And, so kind. And I know at least for me, there was such a level of frustration in terms of the disease. And then I felt frustrated towards my dad a lot. Like, why are you acting like this? What is going on? Obviously before we got the diagnosis, but I really do think that speaks volumes about the person you are and the relationship you had. And I know this episode in particular, it, we really wanted to focus on what it's like to have a spouse who goes through it. And I think, I mean, I think you might be one in a million. I don't know if every spouse would necessarily treat their, you know, their significant other like this. I know I didn't treat my dad that nice. I'll be the first one to say it. I think no. it's really beautiful how you kind of just met her where she was at. Like, yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't even know how to put it into words, but I'm asking you, you know, it was it hard for you and you're like, no, cause you just wanted to be with her, you know? <laughs> I mean, caregiving is new if you hadn't done it. I mean, because our marriage was was perhaps different than others. I mean, when we got when we got married, her kids were grown and gone. You know, we had the five grandchildren, but you get them for a day, you spoil them, you send them home, and you don't have to deal with homework and things. And so, so it was really just her and I. Uh, 
I mean, her mother lived with us for a, for a time. Her mother lived with us for about nine years. And I don't know, that that was a whole nother relationship. That's another, that's another Remember Me podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's funny. But it was, what frustrated me was, I, you know, my whole career is, is resolving conflict between different parties. Typically the architect is angry at the contractor or vice versa. And I'm the mediator to try and smooth things out and make sure that we're still moving forward. And that's, that's my role. And so I think I can fix things. And so FDD frustrated me because I couldn't fix, I couldn't fix the thing for the person I care the most for. And I would try something and think I've got this figured out like the coffee. And, and I only had it figured out for that week because next week it was going to change again. And I was frustrated at myself because I wasn't figuring it out and certainly not her, but the coffee went from, I would take pictures of her finger doing the different tasks of making coffee. And then I'd print it and I'd tape it on the counter and I'd number it sort of one, two, three, you do it this way. That's how we first started. And I could, and that's, that worked until it didn't. And then I'd pre-make it and program it to turn on, but she wouldn't necessarily know to go to the coffee pot and pour herself a cup of coffee. This is while I was working away. And then I got to the point where I'll bring it up to the bedroom and I'll have it there and I'll make it just like hot water maker. So she just has to turn it on and the coffee, instant coffee and sugars in the cup. So she just has to pour it. And that worked until it didn't, you know, and eventually what I would do is just take breaks from work and come home and bring her, her, coffee <laughs> from Starbucks or something. I mean, you have to sort of keep making adjustments when, when they're continuing to lose their ability. I think that's a great oh, yeah. advice for anybody, spouse, parent, child, whoever is listening, you have to be so incredibly flexible and ready to change at the drop of a hat and innovative um, with all the, especially with the behavioral variants, like okay, how do we figure out how to keep them in the house and how to keep them from driving? And my mom had PPA and ALS. And at a certain point in her wheelchair, like she had this compulsive like behavior where she wanted to slip out of her wheelchair. So we had to figure out how to keep her in it. It's just like, we joked in our family that my dad just always had all these like hacks. Like he always came up with some sort of like a solution. And you're just, he's also a project manager type job. So um, I see a lot of similarities, but yeah, it's just, you got to keep meeting them where they're at and figuring it out. Well, and she did have a year of behavioral crashes in the midst of this. And she had the language very, but I was worried that it was progressing to something different because about a year and a half in, she had these bad crashes where she would get very confused and then start to get angry which was so uncommon for her. But she just looked at me and said, well, why are you here? I said, well, because we live together. We're married. I love you. Oh, you're a liar. You're cruel. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to kind of work through that because this is your spouse telling you this and it's so un- out of character. It was, again, it was something you couldn't be mad at her for because it just felt like a different person was standing there. And these typically happened at night and they could last five minutes or three hours. Is that the sundowning? Could have been. It's hard to say because it did last for a year. 
off and on, and it wasn't it wasn't all the time, but I had to look for triggers, triggers that created these emotional crashes. When they first started, I thought, am I doing something wrong that's creating these? And we started to evaluate that and say, okay, she can't have any alcohol, not a drop. Has to be in bed by about 7.30 at night. And later she gets too tired and she starts to crash. Um, too small a place, too busy a place, too hot, if she got too hot. These things would suddenly just start to create, basically bring her defenses down enough to allow the FTD to kind of pop up and, and fire off. And, and those, so we tried to avoid the triggers and those, and those helped a lot, but she would still just, you know, randomly get into these episodes and you just have to protect her and, and, and ride it out and make sure she doesn't hurt herself or she doesn't, she would say, well, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm just going to leave. She said that often um, during these episodes, not, not often within a week. I'm just going to leave. And I'd say, well, honey, it's late. Why don't, why don't we stay here? No, I'm leaving, but then not go anywhere. So I was happy that she didn't have the initiation then to go to the next step and actually leave. But she would have this obsessive compulsive behavior. She'd take a jacket, she'd fold it and refold it 40 times uh, or a blanket or something like that. And I think in doing that, she was trying to regain control. I think she knew she was having an episode and you don't stop her. You just, you, you let her kind of work it through because if I had taken the jacket, that I'm taking from her. I need to let her regain the control by controlling her environment, by folding and refolding that jacket, if that's what it takes, because she knows how to fold this jacket. And, and that I think was really important for her to kind of cope because then eventually she just sort of just snap out of it. And I'd say, would you like to go to bed now? Yeah, okay. And then I'd help her with her pajamas and I'd lay her in bed and I'd play her two soft songs that she liked to listen to at night as she fell asleep and she'd be asleep. So it just happened. And that was off and on for about a year. And then they just stopped. And the last year of her life, she didn't have those. Hmm. So I, I truly believe it was the language variant and there's sort of these odd mood swings kind of in the middle of it that, uh, we see that we we've heard that in a lot of episodes and I experienced that with my mom is, you know, there definitely is a language variant, but then later on you start to see some behavioral things as the disease progresses. So I think there's a lot of overlap in them. And I think we'll just continue to learn more as they discover more about the disease, but kind of going back to the timeline and the story, how, how did things continue to progress for Maureen and were you able to keep up with her care how, how did you manage that I know a lot of people bring in you know companion or adult daycares how, how did you manage that well as things progressed it was evident that we did not have a good support network internally um, friends and family just simply weren't available and so I took her her care as much as I could, but, but again, even with this sort of part out of the home job, I still was partly out of the home. And it got to a point where um, the house was too much to take care of and her, and we were too remote and she was really craving more people. So we put our house on the market and we moved to a 
retirement campus that had various levels of care that you could add on to your, to your unit. And we'd been on a waiting list for a while and got involved in that. And that was in June of 18. And at the same time, she was experiencing a physical problem as well, where she collapsed and took her to the hospital. And I mean, literally right in the middle of the move. And I was trying to make it really easy for her. I was going to have her girlfriend take her for the day to get her nails done and her lunch while the movers were actually moving boxes because that could agitate her quite a bit, that, that level of moving. But literally in the middle of that week, she collapsed. And, and as we found out as, over a series of tests, she had mucinous appendiceal cancer or cancer of the appendix. It's normally a very mild uh, cancer. You you remove the appendix, you remove the tumors it creates and sew them back up and they're good to go. And it's it literally is a, if you're gonna get cancer, it's one of the most mild to get. Unfortunately, she had lost so much weight and she, with the dementia, the doctor said, look, I have zero confidence she's gonna survive a surgery. And if by some miracle she does, it's a day long surgery. That's 12 hours of anesthesia with somebody with dementia. She's going to wake up and have no cognitive function if she survives at all. And those moments all took their toll on her such that she completely shut down in all function in terms of incontinence, in terms of being able to, to, to do anything. I mean, she was completely lost in that her, her, her bathroom functions and her showering functions and her everything needed assistance. And I brought in some in-home care and in-home care, at least in our particular episode, and I don't want to make a blanket statement on in-home care, but in our particular instance, it really was not a quality care. Um, I had a security camera there that I could kind of keep tabs on, on her, and I had it playing while care folks were there, and they just didn't really engage her. They were there to make sure she didn't wander off, and that was not what I was hoping for. I wanted more of a companion. When I could get her friends over there, I did. I had some care professionals come evaluate her in the home. And after four care professionals all told me the same thing, Scott, she needs to be in a care facility. This, even if you weren't working, this, this is something that she needs 24 seven care from professionals. And so that was really hard. Uh, so August 13th of 2018, I, I had her uh, placed in the care facility and I took her there Oh, a couple of weeks ahead of time to introduce her to the facility. We walked around together and she looked at it and, and, and it was there on campus. And that was part of the reason of moving to that campus so that this could happen when, when it was necessary. But I thought maybe we were years away, not less than two months away and uh, got her oriented with that. We put in her favorite things in her room. I made sure she had a private room with a private bathroom because she had always been a private person and those things were gonna be important for her. Otherwise she'd be too agitated. She had to have a private space and, and one fortunately came available, but got it set up with a chair she had picked out that we had shopped for together before years, years before. Some pictures, we put our travel pictures up on the walls and everything was put in first person. Me and my husband, Scott in Hawaii, me and my grandson, Brent at a football game, me and, and so kind of trying to put that in that person and labeled all the photos that are up on the walls. And so she could see that and get that visual stimuli. And, 
And um, I tried to make it right for her, but it was, it was hard. Uh, as, as anybody getting placed in a care facility, the first couple months are pretty rough. I was a mess that day. I mean, I, I took her there that morning and brought her around. And then when it was their lunchtime, I had them take her to lunch so that they, she could get used to them. And, and I disappeared for a while and for just about four hours. And I just had a long, long cry. <laughs> it was a hard day. And then of course I came back and joined her for dinner. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, even though she was in a care facility the last year of her life, I was there every single day. Two I'm or sure three, you were. <laughs> two or three times a day. Um, I was so blessed, even when they had flu running through there, I just masked up and gloved up and still went in. And My heart feels for the people that I know that are FTD caregivers right now with COVID and they can't go in and they haven't been able to go in in months. I don't know what I would have done. I, I don't know. I would have, <laughs> I would have somehow arranged a second mortgage on the home or something and just taken a leave of absence from work and taken her home. I, I don't know what I would have done. That separation would have been really hard as uh, as a spouse. I was uh, blessed that she, I mean, certainly I'd love to have her with me right now, but I was blessed that she did not have to go through the COVID. She passed about four and a half months before COVID hit America. So. I know COVID has really messed everything up. Yeah, yeah it has, it has. Um, but she continued, I mean, she continued to function in the care facility. I'd be there and, and she'd be happy to see me. And we, she paced a lot. And that was something she did a lot in the care facility. She paced a lot until she couldn't walk about the last three months of her life. She couldn't walk. She lost so much weight. She started this FTD journey at about 124 pounds. She ended her journey at 74. And, and, it wasn't for lack of trying to put food in her. I mean, you know, the insurers and the foods that she, but she wanted to get up and walk a lot. And so we changed our meals. I would bring her food and I'd bring, I, I initially brought fruit and things because that's what she liked. But the doctor said, you got to think calories. So I'd be bringing chicken nuggets and milkshakes. And so we'd be walking because she had to pace. So as she's pacing, I'm giving her chicken nuggets as, as she's walking just so she'll eat something, you know, and she'd sip the shake and she liked that. And, and uh, they would give her certain drinks and uh, the insure. She didn't want to drink the insure from the bottle. So I got 10 of the Starbucks sort of reusable plastic cups and I put the insure in the Starbucks cup and gave that to her and she would drink that because she loved her Starbucks. And so we just, again, we found adapting methods even in the care facility of things. And, you know, I'm constantly training staff to kind of help them help her. We went on outings a lot. Yeah. But. If you could give a spouse that's listening one big piece of advice, what do you think you'd say? I know I put you on the spot with that one, didn't I? No, Sorry. no. You know, <laughs> I guess if I was to give them one bit of advice, which will be a hard piece of advice to follow. But I would say, remember why you got married. <laughs> That's and a good I, piece I, of advice. I think that gets you through a lot. You know, I mean, if you, if you kind of go back to when you got married and why you got married and how you felt at the beginning of, you know, when you were married and carry that through into the caregiving, I think that that's, that will help you weather the rough patches in that for sure. And I know Maria kind of touched on this earlier, but now that you're 
well, I guess all three of us are kind of on the other side. What's a big takeaway? Like, what have you learned through this about yourself, about love, about losing someone? What, what's your biggest, like when you think back, you're like, wow, I, you know, crossed this bridge and now I fill in the blank. (laughs) Good question, Rachel. Was that a good one? I like it. I was actually thinking of it for myself and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't I, learned uh, anything yet. I'm interested. Let's hear it, Scott. <laughs> I was surprised how unprepared I was, but I was also surprised by how little it matters that I am prepared or unprepared. The, the, the days go on and no matter how much preparation I have, the next page on the calendar will turn and I will continue to get up the next morning and I will breathe and I will go on and I may not want to, but I do. And I think, I mean, that being on the other side of this, I wasn't sure how I, how I would react to it. Um, I, I remember early when we were married, I, I was worried that I traveled a lot and I thought, you know, I'm just one plane crash, one drunk driver from leaving Marino, a widow, what, what should I do to make sure that she's well taken care of? And I prepped that really well in terms of even her retirement and how I structured it to make sure that if something happened to me, she wouldn't have the house paid for money in the bank and a monthly draw that would allow her to still live the life that she lived when we were together. And I hadn't reversed that thinking. What if she leaves? What, what, what do I do? And, and uh, I'm, I'm still in our home. I ended up moving back to our home. It didn't sell. I had put it on the market, didn't sell. Um, there's pieces of her all around. And Marina had been in, I was her third marriage. She had felt very alone in her first two marriages. And we had a, a, some good conversations before we got married about how she needed to be a priority. Uh, that she didn't want to be alone anymore, uh, that she wanted somebody that wanted to be with her. And we had a running joke for years. I said, okay, tell you what, honey, I will live two weeks longer than you. So I'll take care of you through the end. And I said, and I figure it'll take about two weeks to get things wrapped up and then I can come join you. Mm -hmm. And we would, we would joke about that, but, um, you know, one, it takes a lot longer than two weeks to take <laughs> everything after Um, But, you know, I don't mind that because I'm kind of in a different mode where I am now the steward of Maureen's memory. And yes, there's many people that knew her, but nobody knew all the details that, that I do as this, as the spouse. And so I keep that alive with the, there's a memorial up at our favorite uh, park. There's a bench we put up at uh, Piddock Mansion in Portland. It's, it's a bench I had the Portland Parks put in. There's a little plaque there. It says uh, for Maureen who loved the mansion from Scott who always sat beside her. That's but, beautiful. But uh, it was just a place we had picnicked at and where we had, you know, gone up many, many, many times. She loved to dress fancy and go up to the mansion for Christmas uh, decorations and the like. And uh, also pulled all our journals together. I compiled the story. I thought that was really important. So um, our book is done. 
It's written. It's with, an, it's with an editor right now. I just went through a three-week process for the cover design. We now have a selected cover. And, and you have fine. two readers who are ready to get it. So send it our way when yes. it's ready. <laughs> so hopefully the editor will finish this month and uh, we'll get that put together. I would love to get it on the shelves by April 27th, her birthday. But oh. if it happens in May or June, that'll be fine too. I'll still be happy. So oh, I can't wait. Um, That's really exciting. It's a beautiful so. tribute to her and way to keep her, her story alive. Yeah. Well, before we jump into her words, if sure. you could imagine Mm -hmm. Maureen was sitting next to you and she said, tell them how I want to be remembered. I want to be remembered as, what do you think she'd say? Oh, goodness. She was a very humble person. She would want to be remembered as somebody that was authentic. She had a big heart. She loved everyone. She sometimes was misread by people as, oh, well, she's just standoffish because she's quiet, she's introverted, that, oh, she must not like me because she's not talking to me. Marina was a very reserved person, but she loved everybody she ever met. And so I think she'd want people to know that she loved them and she was a very authentic person, just wasn't always comfortable sharing it or showing it. She'd hate to be mis- misremembered or misunderstood that she didn't like somebody or didn't, you know, that she was disapproving because she wasn't, she just was quiet. Unless she knew you. If she knew you well, then there was all sorts of laughter and jokes and everything. But. Well, now my favorite part, I think it's Maria's favorite part too, is it? I think it is. Um, would you kindly share something from Maureen? Anything, poem? Letter, email, birthday card. Any. This is when we get the tissues. Yeah, seriously. Uh, Oof. Well, I had uh, pulled this up and it uh, a copy of this is included on my With Love campaign site. Maureen kept a journal off and on throughout her life. And this is a journal entry. And it is from October 27th, 1997. And we had been dating about a year. She was moving from Eugene, Oregon to come up and live with me in Portland, Oregon. And this was her last week there in Eugene. And she titled this entry Closure. And it was several pages long. And I'm just capturing the last page here. I would like my life a little simpler, but still feeling fulfilled at the end of each day. I truly in my heart believe Scott and I will achieve this. I know of no one who understands me more and can accept the complexities that make up who I am. God walks in and through our lives and he will bring us to marriage if it is to be. God help me, I love him. That wonderful stirring is the sigh of the heart, the joy of laughter, the sorrow of tears. The person holding my hand helps to quell all my fears. This is how important he is in my life and to me. He is the mate to my soul. He guides my spirit and gives me unconditional love. 
my dearest Scott, the fun of this is reading it in the future or perhaps the sorrow. But either way, I can leave you written memoirs. Please share them with all my angels so that they will learn more about me through my words, all of them. I say all because of future angels only God knows of. I know, don't end with a preposition. Do you ever wonder how lonely you were for your first 30 years? And if you will be as lonely the last 30 years of your life? I hope not. I miss you. There will never be enough time. Live every day like it was your last here on earth. My love forever and always, your Annie. If you want to support the AFTDs with Love campaign, you can do so by visiting the link on our website. It's RememberMeFTD.com, and you can click our With Love banner. When you click the link, you can donate directly to Scott's page set up in honor of his wife, Maureen. For more information and resources about frontal temporal degeneration, you can visit the AFTD's website, theAFTD.org. If you or a loved one is living with FTD, they want you to reach out to the AFTD helpline with any questions by calling 866-507-7222. You can also send an email at info at if you want to connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast. We release new episodes each week on Mondays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, be sure to leave us a review. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent.